This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everyone out there in uh, 3RRR community land. Welcome to the show. I'm Dr. Doolittle. And we have a special show for you. I know I always say that, but this time I really mean it. Assisting from every other time. To begin with, we have a special guest. We have Annalise in with us, who is a music therapist. And I'm going to um, tell you all about her later, but she's from the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. And she's going to tell us all about music as a form of therapy to help people with cancer. And she's going to tell us the ins and outs of actually what music can do to help your health in general. We've also, guess what? We've also got a new journalism student on the crew. He's called Dr. Pat, at least that's what I'm calling him. Dr. Pat, he might want to change his name. He's here to give us a report on um, how mental health in the media is portrayed with particular reference to Donald Trump's recent comments about post-traumatic stress disorder in the uh, that uh, happened about three or four days ago that caused yet another furor. Is that the word? Furor. Um, and we've also got a couple of our regulars in this morning. We've got Dr. Trainer Wills and Dr. Perry Partham. Now, Perry, as you know, is a famous Melbourne psychiatrist. Um, she's, she's laughing, you are famous. And she's also been to a big and famous perinatal mental health conference that she was going to tell us maybe a little bit about, but she also wants to get onto the Donald Trump bandwagon and talk a little bit about you know, the general concept of what we can say about pe- public people's personality, what we can infer, what it means and, uh, and what it tells us. Should it inform us in any way about how we vote? Trainer Wheels is also here. She's our medical student extraordinaire. She, are you a famous medical student? I think so. Yeah, sure. Sure, why not? Yeah, why not? And uh, she's going to focus a little bit on how long we can live, how long people can live in general. Is there a ceiling? Will we ever get to the stage where we live to 200 or is there some biological ceiling? She's going to tell us a little bit about that. So, everyone, sit back, relax, enjoy yourself. We're going to talk a little bit more in just a second. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. So, Dr. Pat, you're brand new here. Yes, How I are am. you? Yes, very well, thank you. Thanks for coming in. Did you have any trouble finding Brunswick? No, not at all. No, it's not. It's surprisingly yeah. easy to find Brunswick. I, I'm always, you know... Sunday morning traffic is quite kind as well, so... Did just you drive or ride your bike? Drive. Came out from eastern suburbs. Students so, uh, these days. What's going on over... You know... I do drive. Wheels. I can speak for myself. I, no, I didn't. I rode my bike. <gasps> I, I going to say, I rode my bike. students these days in the cars, you know, they just come. They, I think they've spoiled. I think you students, see, in my day, we actually, I did have a car. Now that I think, I was just going to say, in my day, no one had cars. But I think the deal was with my dad. I think he said, if you get into uni, because no one thought I'd have a hope, as you can imagine, um, <laughs> I'd get a car. Anyway, so, it's your, so um, you're doing this segment that we like to do, you know, pretty much about once a month where we get a journalist student in here and we get them to give us their take on health from a journalist perspective. So what have you brought in for us, Pat? Uh, well, I brought in a, um, uh, some of a recent media blowout with Donald Trump, uh, which has uh, come out uh, more than once this week. I'm not going to touch on the recent one, getting onto the papers this morning. Yeah, I read that this morning too. We might touch on that later in, uh, in Perry Pardon's segment. Anyway, keep going. That's all right. Well, at the start of this week on Monday, uh, at an event hosted by the uh, retired American Warriors PAC, uh, Donald Trump was asked about approaches to prevent uh, suicide among veterans. Now, I'll just start off with a quote from the Washington Post because it was quite a, um, it was about a th- two, three minute response from him. 
But basically, he was quoted as saying, uh, and you're strong and you can handle it, but a lot of people can't handle it. And that was referring to um, uh, veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah. Uh, so they're suggesting that uh, they're somehow a little weaker. Um, so, yeah, the article was titled as Trump suggests military members with mental health issues aren't strong and can't handle it. Now, a lot of uh, mental health professionals and Army veterans have publicly criticised uh, Donald Trump for the comment. And USA Today recently published a piece about on Wednesday uh, from uh, Marine Corps veteran uh, Jeremy Anganand stating the GOP nominee's thoughtless remarks prove he is not fit to be the next commander-in-chief. And the view was also shared by uh, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at Yale University, uh, Joanne Cook, who published a letter to Donald Trump in the conversation uh, titled, Dear Donald, I treat combat veterans with PTSD and they are not weak. Uh, she also refers to a 2015 research paper that one of the most frequently reported barriers to um, uh, veterans seeking uh, a mental health treatment are concerns about stigma, and that's through all stages of their, uh, their life cycle, from recruitment to training all the way until um, uh, they're, they're, dis- they're discharged. Uh, so about 60%, and she quotes, of military personnel uh, who experience mental health problems do not actually seek help, and those uh, results are in fact comparable to Australian uh, military servicemen uh, moreover. Um, now, as that kind of unfolded on Thursday, interestingly enough, a comedian and host of The Daily Show, Comedy Central Trevor Noah, came out with a segment uh, defending Donald Trump, uh, referring to Donald's uh, closing statements. Yeah, in fact. Wait so for a team. Look, they're getting was, angry down there at the other oh, so now, It was quite a lengthy response that yep. Donald Trump provided, and um, he hasn't really touched on mental health uh, whatsoever throughout his campaign, um, and it's only been touched briefly. Uh, Hillary Clinton came out um, with her comprehensive strategy in August. But anyway, focusing on uh, Trevor Noah's uh, comment, now he highlights at the end of um, Donald Trump's response um, that he wants to introduce a very robust level of performance having to do with, uh, with mental health. So in typical Trump style, he doesn't necessarily go into the comprehensive policy details as to how we wish to uh, address mental health concerns. Uh, that's a, on broad um, uh, health care, let alone with uh, veterans. Um, but he does say that he wants to make it good or better yeah. <laughs> uh, in, his, in, his, in his style. So Trevor Noah does continue to criticise how the media misreported the clip uh, for the sake of stirring uh, public outrage. And he does, um, uh, you know, analyse a few uh, Hillary Clinton quotes that have kind of been blown out of proportion as well. So I guess it kind of highlights that in an era of uh, syndicated content, because uh, a lot of that was also uh, featured in the, the Age and Sydney Morning Herald. So in digital communications, political leaders are scrutinised heavily for their words. So as a direct consequence, they're heard and felt by millions around the world. So is it OK to get it wrong in public life, really, is Oof. the question. So... I read, I read all this up this morning too, like, like you, because it's really quite interesting. You know, the initial, your initial take on this story develops as you start to read more and more. And yeah. that's, that's what I thought. So, so I'm interested, um, training wheels down there and peripartum, you know, because you're, you're getting angry down there. <laughs> do you know, just tell us before you give your view, do you know the story? Have you read the controversy? I don't, I'll be honest. I don't. That's great. That's perfect. That's why because you're at the start mm. of the whole thing. Okay, so having okay. heard that Trump said what he said, what's your initial take? Oh, it doesn't sound ideal. Yep. It's not well, you know there's a, you know there's a sting now, so you're being, so you're pulling back and you're not being quite so angry <laughs> yeah. as you were as Dr. Pat was reading out the story. Yeah. Well, I mean, obviously, I think any 
claim that a person with mental illness is somehow weak, that you know they're somehow to blame for that illness, I think is contributing to a society that stigmatizes mental illness more broadly and it's not a good attitude to hold especially see, someone in public life like that absolutely spot on and that's what happened you know reading having looked at the story and reading it you know the stories from four days ago and then how it unfolded each day so the initial response was this massive outcry because trump had called people with ptsd weak said they couldn't handle the war said they weren't as strong and uh so massive outcry of course, no one watched the actual video. Then when people... Look, because everyone, you know, just, you know, Trump said so many things that are offensive that it, it's just a, a given. Everyone just assumes that he was being, yet again, offensive. As it turned out, the actual video... Did you watch the actual video, Pat? I did. Yeah, quick, same. Yeah. It, was re- it was actually relatively... It wasn't as bad as it sounded. He'd never used the word weak. Well, he, exactly he essentially correct, got up yeah. there and said, this is a really important area. Mm-hmm. Um, I know a lot of people in this room have gone through all sorts of experiences and maybe you're strong and you were able to handle it. Those who haven't been able to handle we need to support them. The suicide rate's way too high at oh. 20 people a day. Um, we need to pour money into our mental health for veterans and we're going to fix it. Again, as Dr Pat says, zero detail, just we're going to fix it, um, which clearly was, is just an inadequate response. But um, I was really surprised because I started reading all the initial outcry too and I thought... Oh, outrageous, contributing to stigma. When I actually watched it, I thought this was more about politics and how the media handled politics than it was about mental health. I don't know. Certainly. Well, even in that uh, Washington Post article, uh, it does very little to kind of exhume further detail about mental health policy, Mm. let alone, you know, having a formal discussion about um, you know, what are politicians' roles in in terms of, you know, uh, you know, assisting with getting rid of that stigma. Uh, it was very politicised uh, and it kind of just went onto the gaffes and it kind of uh, fueled that, that media cycle, that media craze for outrage. Why does the media do that? Why do you reckon? Why does the media get into that well, whole thing? Because you think, you know, you guys are educated in providing a balanced so- side of the story mm-hmm. and it's... But it doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. Why doesn't it always happen, do you reckon? Well, uh, f- again, speaking from the Washington uh, Post, when you ha- have an owner like um, uh, Bezos, who is a public... Uh, he's publicly criticised uh, Trump, and that's only to say that they do have a political agenda as well. So formally, when it goes through an editorial process, yeah. whether it be by your editor or somewhere higher up, um, quite often than not, or not, it's um, it's kind of skewed toward a you know some sort of political orientation. Some political and also orientation. the bias to sell papers. You know, drama sells papers or sells media space, whether it's papers, radio, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. Still, it's an interesting story. And I look, you know, at least I suppose he was talking about mental health, but it still feels like too little, too late. You know, one, definitely a couple of sentences. Mm-hmm. Any other comments from the uh, team? We happy? Yeah, I'm happy with that. Are we gonna we're gonna talk a little bit more Trump later, aren't we? Yeah, that's right. I'm I'm gonna sledge him much more than in fact he was sledged by the Washington Post. So. You sledge <laughs> Hey Doctor Pat though, thanks for coming in and no thanks dramas. for doing that segment. That was fantastic. Thank good you. To, you know, good to have you on board. We'll see you again, I'm hoping. Thanks, um, another topic. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to our second topic this morning, which I have no idea what it was about because during the Doctor Doctor music, Perry, Doctor Perry, we'd like to do production on air. Yeah, that's right. Um, I have what to what keep is you your second toes, topic? You know? What so is the topic you want to do? I I wanted to talk about clowns and scary clowns because... Um, yeah, thanks for, you know, thanks for forewarning. Scary, I'm, I'm getting all... Yeah, go on. I know, you are, and so I'm is everybody now. else in the room. Scary clowns. There's been a craze in the last few months in America and it started to sweep sort of English-speaking nations like yep. Britain and Canada. And it's here in Melbourne as well, in the northern suburbs, in fact. Um, where scary clowns are marauding the streets, right. enticing young children into forests and running down the street with knives. 
So, no. Um, yes. That's just uh, really. Yes. Nice. <laughs> well, there was one. There was one fourteen-year-old boy who was arrested. He would get shot after, by police potentially. Well, he was arrested. I mean, he wasn't I'm not shot. suggesting the police shoot clowns with knives, but no. you're putting yourself at a lot of risk if you run anywhere with a knife, dressed as a clown, yes, or anything else. I think that's true. I think that's true. Um, I think that the whole phenomenon has been fueled by the fear of clowns, which exists in a lot of people, yourself included, obviously. Well, and you know, I'm not actually scared of clowns, but I've loved it ever since Seinfeld because Kramer was a bit scared of. Clowns, do you remember? And Sample oh, used to. Oh, clown and, and he's not alone. So yeah, I actually think. What's the name for it, by the way? Can you remember it, the yes, name? Yes, it's, it's. Hang on. Clownophobia? No, 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 no. <laughs> so you keep talking and I'll look it up. No, no, I've got it. It's coolerophobia. Say it slowly. Coolerophobia. Coolerophobia. Yeah. Oh, that's right. oh, wow. Um, and they all. Uh, there's a lot of stuff about it on the internet, obviously, at the moment. Excuse me. <clears throat> a lot of them talk about the Stephen King novel It. Have you yep. read that? I've seen that the cover. really scared the socks off <laughs> That's me. enough of Great illustrations. <laughs> <laughs> and then, then, of course, it was made into a movie. Right. <clears throat> by Steven Spielberg. And, you know, the Joker in Batman, he's pretty yep. creepy. Um, there's this real vein of fear of the clown in, in popular culture, which I think... Um, and, and there's a lot of speculation about why it might be. Why do we find clowns who are there specifically to entertain us yep. actually really creepy? And there's, um, <laughs> there's a few theories. Like, one theory is that because they wear so much makeup and because, they're ex- because their expressions don't change at all, that's actually very frightening for particularly young children who are trying to, you know, assess the emotions on the faces of different adults and try and understand what that what that means for their behaviour. Um, but there's also, I suppose, clowns behave in this very outlandish way where there's no rules. Or, in fact, if there are rules, they deliberately flout them, which mm-hmm. which is kind of going to lead me on to my discussion about Trump, actually, now that I think <laughs> about it. But um, but I, I, I also think it's kind of odd, then, that considering that we're all a bit frightened of them, that we use them a lot in children's hospitals. Like, there are a lot of clown doctors around, and they're awesome. But I wonder if a few children might find them a little bit frightening and intimidating if they come into their room and they're... You know, because they, they squirt water and they do all sorts of stuff which you're not supposed to do. It's an interesting phenomenon, I think. And given particularly that it's arrived in Melbourne just as we speak. And there's a vigilante posse, by the way, on Facebook. Of clowns? No, no, no. Out, out to get the clowns. <laughs> oh, the anti-clowns. Yeah, yeah. Anti-clowns. Yeah, yeah. They're calling themselves the scary Very clown. Pardon, can I just check? You haven't been smoking anything in here for one of those funny plants that people in Brunswick are prone to. <laughs> I can also talk about proper science if you'd like to. No, I love it. But no, look, I, you know, I, I agree. It's a, it's a very real thing. Um, what was I going to say? You've got me confused now with clowns. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I've heard cl- um, this discussed on um, on entertainment shows. But mm. and there are, and I understand when you go to clown school, there are you know, there's various characters. Different clowns take on the sad clown, the happy clown, and the scary clown is a well-established cultural. Context for certain clowns, and in a typical troupe, I understand. I don't know clown culture. I heard an interview a couple of years ago about this. Um, in clown culture, there is often a range of characters. Say in a circus, you know, they might have ten clowns, and the clowns have various functions, like rounding up the animals, keeping people safe, mm-hmm. entertaining between acts, mm-hmm. engaging the audience, and they have different characters. And there is normally a scary one. I understand. Yeah. And so you, that, and that you can see why that's been dragged out into movies, and you can see why people get phobic because there's other phobias like around inanimate representations of human human objects. I've forgotten the name. I forget. There's you know, so many different phobias. But yeah, it, it's, it is fascinating. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What so watch out for scary clowns in Brunswick. Is that the gist? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Brunswick and I think probably in Reservoir. Rightio, yeah. It's always those Be two careful. places. Yeah. Hey, I want to tell people about an event before we, um, before we go to a song. 
Now, who out there thinks that? In that fact, the people out there can't answer. So who in here, <laughs> in this room, do you, do you... I'll ask you, Perry Parton, because you're a shrinker. You're a shrinker. Do you think addiction is a disease? So addiction, say drug addiction or alcohol addiction. Do you think of it as a disease or a social phenomenon? How do you think of it? So I, I think that it is... Probably there are people who have vulnerabilities to developing addictions and in certain social contexts where that particular substance is available, then it makes them develop, you know, an addiction tendency and behaviour. But I think the more we learn about um, all sorts of different things that we've previously considered to be character flaws or mental illnesses, the more we see that there are brain changes which are associated with those particular um, behaviours and and the more genetic relationships we see between, say, for for example, alcoholism. There's a very strong genetic um, tendency to alcoholism. It runs in families really heavily. And given that that's the case, even in children who are raised um, away from their biological parents, it's hard to say that it's therefore um, you know, a social phenomenon. It must be something about the mix between the biological tendency and then the social context. And therein is why... Perry Parton is a famous psychiatrist in Melbourne. <laughs> Just imagine if you got asked in an exam and you gave that answer. The examiners would basically do a mic drop. They'd do a mic drop, they'd walk out, they'd say, she passes, done and dusted. I'm glad you didn't ask me. I would have been hopeless. That was very good. <laughs> well, you are only a first-year medical student. Are you a yes, first or second first. year? No, first. I'm not going to listen to anything you say then. No, I don't. <laughs> and the audience should follow suit. <laughs> But um, so you don't need to come to this event because you've just heard Perry Parton sing. <laughs> but at the um, National Gallery of Victoria on the 21st of October 2016, between 6 and 7 pm, there is a free event called Drugs, Desire and Disease How Neuroscience is Changing Our Understanding of Addiction. And it's all based on this idea that addiction is a brain disease and it matters, which came from a 1997 declaration by the director of the US National Institute on Drug Abuse. I'm reading it out, obviously, my memory's not this good. Um, that, you know, essentially said that uh, drug um, addiction is a disease. And it, the idea was to try and um, attract more people with addictions into treatment. But of course, the way addiction's changed since then, there's clearly multiple factors, social factors, biological factors, supply factors. And so a lot of the neurosciences are saying it doesn't, scientists are saying it doesn't quite fit a disease model. Anyway, there's a, so this is a debate and they've got some fantastic people. Professor Mark Lewis, who's a leading neuroscientist. Professor Dan Lubman, who's the director of Turning Point, Australia's biggest addiction treatment and research service in Melbourne, it is. Professor um, Helen Keane, who's a sociologist. And Gavin Krasiska. Now, that name mightn't mean a, lo- a lot to uh, people who are... Who are um, is Heath in the right word? People who don't break for Collingwood? Anyway, <laughs> Gavin Krasiska is a famous um, Collingwood footballer. I w- grew up watching him, and he's got a strong view on this too, and he's a, uh, he's now works in the addiction sphere. Um, I'm going to put a link on our Facebook page for people to uh, book into this. You, you are meant to book. You're meant to go to The Brain Dialogue, search that, or you can. I, all I did to find out about it um, myself was to... Uh, Google addiction and stuff like National Gallery and you'll get to it. But I'll put a link on our Facebook page, which is um, Radiotherapy Triple R, and that will give you more detail. But uh, it's on next week. I should... Um, do I have to do a conflict of interest thing? I'm involved with it too. So uh, I probably should have said that at the start. I think I might be hosting or something or other. Um, but anyway, I'm involved, so conflict of interest declaration. But I, I do think it's going to be good. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. You have on the panel this morning Dr Perry Parton, our famous psychiatrist, as I keep saying, who shakes her head in disgust and thinks, (laughs) do little stop being a... Is 
you let us say dickhead on Sunday morning? Yeah, yeah, yeah Stop it. Stop and exactly. Dr. Trainer Wheels, our first year medical student, who's not extraordinary at all, she tells us. <laughs> but our special guest is Annalise Way. Now, Annalise has been working as a registered music therapist for about the last 10 years. And she currently works as a senior music therapist at both Peter Mac Cancer Centre and at the Bethlehem Hospital. She specialises in music therapy, therefore, for oncology, palliative care, and progressive neurological disorders. And uh, Annalise has also provided music therapy in the disability aged care and rehab sectors in the past. And so we wanted to get Annalise on just to tell us all about it, how it works and all that sort of stuff. How are you, Annalise? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for getting up on a Sunday morning and coming and joining us. Oh, look, it's tough, it's tough, but I've managed. Yeah, and you didn't bring a guitar or anything? No, I didn't bring a guitar. I thought we might get you to sing us a song, though. Oh, you know, my voice sounds raspy, though, for reasons that I don't understand. I've heard rumours. I've heard you're a drummer. I am. I do. I do play the drums, but I'm really yes. bad. So you know, yeah. So I'm certainly not a musician. That's I mean, okay. Yeah. Music therapy. We accept all kinds. Really, even yep. bad ones. Yeah. Yep. Hey, why don't we get the ball rolling by telling us what music therapy is? Sure. Well, uh, music therapy is a research-based profession, and we use music and knowledge about how music is processed in the brain and the effect that it has on the body to help people improve their health and well-being. Basically, so you'll find music therapists working in a range of areas uh, across the age span, right from bubs up into your hundred-year-olds in your nursing homes. It's different that you know. I said to some people in a cafe yesterday, I had a music therapist on the radio tomorrow, and their immediate thought was, oh, isn't that just playing music to the ward to calm them down? It is so different from that, and it drove me a bit nuts. I got it quite (laughs) snappy, um, which I'm prone to do anyway. Um, You mainly work with individuals, don't you? Yeah, so we work with individuals. We also work with groups. um, And I think a common misconception of music therapy um, is people will often mistake it for music education or for music entertainment. Um, But the research behind what we do is quite different and the goals and the aims that we're trying to address with music are also different to educating or simply entertaining people. This might be a big question, but what sort of outcomes do you see when you when you do provide some music therapy for patients? What sort of what does that give them? Yeah. So I guess given that um, music therapists do work in such a range of population groups, their outcomes will be different depending on the populations we work with. But for me, um, particularly working in oncology, for example, we see um, a lot of impact on people's anxiety levels. People not being able to sleep at night is often reduced. Music can help people with that. Um, Their perception of pain their ability to express emotions and process some of what is going on for them um, in their you know, journey of illness. And again, sometimes those expressions of emotions help with the anxiety, help with the pain perceptions. There's some really interesting um, studies that, are, that have been done showing that people who listen to music pre-procedure, during procedure and after procedure often have less need for um, medications and they have quicker recovery, um, less time in hospitals. So we're seeing these sorts of outcomes for people, particularly um, in the cancer arena. Wow. So does that mean that the surgeon should not be choosing the music in the theatre? <laughs> well, yeah, that the is a, yeah, that's a decision. very, very good point. Um, one thing we know in music therapy is that uh, people's preferred music is ideal and that's what we try to use when we're working with patients. So um, if surgeons were consulting the patients to find out what kind of music they liked um, to listen to, that would be ideal. Can I ask another question? Sure, you, can. you said that actually it can change pain perception. Mm. That's amazing. Do you, yeah. can, do you have any theories about why that might be? Yeah, so we know that music actually um, triggers the neural pathways in the brain that release natural painkillers and natural opioids. 
that the body produces itself. Um, so for mild to moderate experiences of pain, music can be an effective um, tool to use to produce those, those natural painkillers in the body. And is that something that you could use just after surgery or is it something that you could use, say, for a chronic pain condition? Yeah, you could, you could use it for a chronic pain condition as well. I suppose one of the other reasons that music sometimes um, is effective in reducing pain is because of the physiological effect that it has on the body. Um, pain can be exacerbated by a lot of different things. Anxiety is one of them. Um, and we know that particular types of music help the body to relax. So music can um, reduce muscle tension, it can reduce heart rate, it can reduce blood pressure, breathing rate. And we don't really have to think about that. For that to happen, the music does it uh, naturally. So that's another reason why music can be an effective tool in helping to reduce pain. Can you know when you're doing something like that? Does it? Do you think about the type of music? Because I'm just thinking, you know, you're talking about the perception of pain. I'm wondering, you know, is it the sad minor chord sort of stuff, mm. or is it the happy upbeat major chord? You know, what does it, it depend on the individual's personality or the disorder as to what sort of music you choose? Yeah, so I suppose it's a little bit of both. We know if you if you're looking to um, have an outcome of relaxation, for example, if yep. someone is you know really stressed and they're you know when you're in pain, your body tends to tense and tense up. So mm-hmm. you want to um, bring about a relaxation response. That kind of music you want to play a music that people like, but music that's generally fairly slow, around about sixty beats per minute. Um, music that doesn't have any sudden changes. You'd probably stay away from you know a lot of your minor chords and your dissonance and that sort of thing. So pretty constant, steady, calm music. But there's also another reason why music can be an effective distractor from pain. It's called the gate control theory, which you guys may Mm. or may not be familiar with, but, you know, it's essentially that the brain can't multitask as we think it can so brilliantly. So if you provide a stimulus for it to focus on, in this case, music, um, it's got the brain is less likely to be focusing on the pain. And in that case, you may use music um, that's less along that relaxation line, uh, but is familiar to the person that you're working with is enjoyed by the person that you're working with you might ask them to focus on the lyrics or focus on the piano line in the music or just do something to to um tailor their attention and focus their attention on the music so that it forms uh, serves as that form of distraction the, the neuroscience of music is really only just developing, isn't it? Because, you know, I was really interested a couple of years ago, I heard that, oh, God, I'm so, it's Sunday morning, my brain never works, but the guy who used to be the director of the Australian Opera, and he's been running a, prog- um, a campaign for about five years now of the importance of, he wants, com- he wants I think not, maybe not compulsory, but certainly music education to be available in every school in Australia, and it's based on the neuroscience of children's developing brains, and there's a whole lot of evidence, for example, that music has all these flow-on effects. Kids... Um, learn better in other domains if they mm. learn music as well. And I'm hearing the same in the neurosciences of various illnesses. It just Every year there seems to be more mm. about what music does and the benefits of it. It's so un- misunderstood, yeah. though. Well, music is one of the rare things that is actually sort of termed a whole brain event. Uh-huh. So depending on what you're doing in music, nearly every part of the brain is used. Um, and so it's also a really effective tool for developing those new neural pathways, particularly in brain injury. Um, and yeah, there's a, there's a lot more research coming out about all that kind of thing. Wow. Annalise, mm. do you mind if I ask, how did you become a music therapist? Uh well, I always loved music, but I was one of these people that sort of flitted around high school, never quite sure what I wanted to do, and I had no idea, so I applied for a whole range of different things when I finished Year 12. But music was my passion, and I had a year off after Year 12, and I heard about music therapy, and it, for me, combined a lot of areas I was interested in. So working with people, helping people, music, psychology, all that kind of thing. So I then went and did a bachelor's 
of music therapy at Melbourne University um, and then became a music therapist. But the course has now changed. It's a Master's of Music Therapy. Um, so do you have to be a musician to get into the course? Do you have to have an instrument? You Can you do, front up? You do, yeah. <laughs> do you we do, do an need, audition? You do an audition, yeah. Oh, wow. So wow. usually, or well, when I did it at least, we had to um, perform a few songs on our primary instrument and then we also had to play guitar and sing. Right. Um, and I'm pretty sure it would be a, a similar process. So yeah, there, what's is, your, what's your there is an audition. Um, what's I'm what's a, your major? My major, well, I'm a vocalist. So oh. I studied uh, singing at uni, but I started piano when I was about four. And then I picked up guitar when I studied music therapy. And is there like a real massive outcry and shortage of drummer music therapists? <laughs> drummer music therapists? Well, <laughs> not super restful. Our, our um, music therapist who is currently on maternity leave at Peter Mac is a percussionist. So huh. there you go. Are you thinking of a changing career? I, I reckon, you know, look, I'm a, you know, because I'm one of those agitated drummers who drums, you know, constantly. I'm driving, I'm drumming on the steering wheel, I'm sitting, I'm drumming. Sometimes if I'm in an interview and stuff, I put my hand under my leg and I just tap on my, you know, it's like a nervous habit. That's probably contributing to your patient's anxiety. <laughs> yeah, I know. So I don't think I'm going to help. <laughs> hey, um, you know, because I've seen, I've been working with music therapists for years and I've seen lots of different um, ways people done it. One of them have done, you know, lots of different um, ways it's been utilised to help patients. One of the best ways I've saw it, and I'm just wondering if you guys do this much. I had a patient who was having a heart transplant once, and um, the music therapist, and she she was, you know, staring down the barrel, obviously, at not getting a heart. She was uh, waiting in hospital, and the music therapist not only spent a lot of time with her. Um, um, helping her deal with the anxiety, but also helped her write this incredibly beautiful mm. song that she made on a CD for a whole family. Because her, I don't, I, actually, I won't go into any details about heart disease, but it was quite, because I don't want to, you know, obviously confidentiality, yeah. but because um, it was quite specific, the details. But it was incredibly, I think the word's poignant, and mm. the whole, it changed the way the whole family, and even the way the staff. Do you guys make CD, help patients make CDs and all yeah. that sort of stuff? Yeah, we do. So songwriting is one of the things that we uh, do with our patients for a variety of different reasons. Um, in the hospital setting, we may write songs or enable patients to write their own songs really um, as a legacy creation. So sometimes people write songs for family members, friends, when they do have a terminal illness. Um, other times people write songs just as a way of expressing what's going on for them. We've had people who've written actually quite humorous songs, sort of tongue-in-cheek about being in hospital and pick lines and, you know, hospital gowns and all yeah. that kind of thing um, as a form of coping. And some people use it as, as purely a creative outlet while they have really long hospital stays to, to distract them. But it's a really, really powerful um, tool that people can use to express their inner world and their thoughts and their affections towards family members. Because it sort of strikes me, I mean, I don't know, I mean, it sort of strikes me, because a lot of people with cancer are facing, it's a terminal illness for a lot of mm. people, I wonder, do, do people ever make songs to play at their own funeral or anything yeah. like that? It just well, sort yeah. of struck me as something. Absolutely. It'd be, oh, oh, it sends a, a bit of a shiver down my spine because mm. you go to a funeral, I'm, I don't know why that came to my mind, but you'd go to a funeral and you'd hear the yeah. person whose funeral you're there for maybe singing or, or at least words they've written. Mm. So people do that sort of thing? Yeah, they do. I am... Um, I did have one patient who um, had given me permission to tell his story and he, he wanted to do that. He did have a terminal illness and he wanted to write a song for his funeral and he had a relatively large family and so he dedicated a part of his song to every person in his family. Wow. There were lyrics for his family and it was a surprise actually. So his family, only one member of his family knew about it and it was played at the funeral and we had Oof. a recording that was given as a gift to um, every member of his family. So, yeah, it's... um. It's pretty heavy, but it's, it's beautiful and incredibly powerful. And I think it, f for this person in particular, gave him a real sense of 
empowerment to know that he had a gift that his family would receive with, mm. you know, his words and his thoughts and his love for them. Wow. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah, that's beautiful. But as a side issue then, so do you have to be musical to benefit from music therapy? No, not at all. <laughs> um, and that is something that I think a lot of people do question, and, and especially when we talk about things like songwriting, people think, oh, but I'm not a musician, I couldn't do that. You don't need to be musical to have music therapy. The benefits of music... Um, are for everybody and music therapists are always trained to enable you to engage with music if that's what you choose to do um, and to make that an incredibly simple and um, beneficial process yeah fantastic hey um we're going to go to a song in a second in fact that reminds me i didn't back announce the last song it was the foves big summer for me talking of music hey you've been listening people out there in triple r land to annalise way who's uh, as i said was a, is a registered music therapist for over 10 years she works at peter matt cancer center at the bethlehem hospital and uh thanks so much for telling us all about that annalise that was just no fantastic Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. The next thing um, Perry Parton wanted to talk about was a little bit about um, Donald Trump and some of the personality and um, issues that might come up with this. And this topic yeah, yeah. already makes me a little bit scared. I know, so I can, hear, I'm on I can edge. hear the fear in your I'm voice. And I want to reassure you. So um, You're not going to slander anyone. I, I, I might slander someone, but I guess... I, I think this is an interesting topic to discuss. Certainly I've never met Donald Trump and I certainly don't know anything about him personally, but public figures these days are so visible in so many different ways and we know so much about them um, and about every aspect of their life and particularly so with this election where people's personality is being scrutinised so closely. I think it's actually really interesting to think about the kind of personality characteristics that they have and whether that adds up to anything from our understanding of how personality is. Um, so I, I must add this disclaimer which might feel you, make you feel a little bit more comfortable which is this is just pure speculation um, and I have no professional understanding of him or anything You've associated with him. you interviewed him etc etc. Nope, don't know him. Can I just touch on why I'm so toey about that? Yeah Do you please. mind? No no go ahead. Just to digress for a second because it comes from a famous case in the early 70s I think it was about 1972 and it's still a part of the American Psychiatric Association's Code of Ethics and it's still um, trumpeted around the world for anyone in psychiatry who works in the media and ah. it's called the Goldwater Rule and it came from this famous case where um, a dodgy magazine sent a survey to um, thousands of psychiatrists in America about a um, presidential candidate called Goldwater. I forgot his first name. Barry. Um, was it? Barry, thank you. Um, saying, uh, you know, what do you think of his personality? Is he fit to lead? And uh, about 1,500 psychiatrists were silly enough, I will say, to reply. And a whole lot drew all sorts of psychological conclusions about him. Never having met him, only having seen the portrayals in the media, which mm. Dr Pat earlier on showed us, are often quite incorrect. And uh, it caused an outcry. He actually sued the magazine successfully, not because of what the psychiatrist said, because the magazine misquoted a lot of the psychiatrists and exaggerated it. And, and it led to huge public debate. In fact, it had been going on for a long time already. But it led to a lot of debate about should psychiatrists do it? Because it's OK for the media and for non-shrinks to do it. But if a 
psychiatrist gets up and says someone in a public space has a certain problem, people are more likely to believe it. And so it carries a weight that it maybe shouldn't necessarily carry given the psychiatrists are only speculating. So these days it's considered okay to talk about um, the psychological stuff because and the psychiatric, the personality stuff because you're trying to use it for public education. But you've just got to be so careful to say, look, this isn't... I'm not necessarily talking about Donald Trump, but if a person gets up and says these sorts of things that Donald Trump says, it might lead you to believe X, Y and Z. However, I should put in the caveat that I can't make the conclusion unless I've seen the patient. And so that's that's why I'm toey about it. And it has... We've done... We did... We fell for it once on Triple R. It was over a decade ago now. One of us accidentally made a comment about a politician and that politician quite rightly rang up and complained and we realised our error and made an apology. Um, so that's why I'm so toey about it. So I'm sorry to hijack Just in your case segment. Donald Trump's listening to Triple R. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, well, I heard Donald Trump follows me on Twitter. <laughs> No, it's not true. Um, <laughs> go on, Perry Parton, back well, to the topic. Actually, that makes a lot more sense now, and now I'm really worried. So um, we can just talk about the Maasai Conference. <laughs> no, no, be gen- no, no, we can still talk, but we're being general because we've given our caveat and we've discussed it. Okay, so now right. go to town. No, okay. <laughs> so none of this is based on... This is just speculation. That's it all. It totally is speculation, and, and I hear what you say, and I do think we need to be careful because above all and beyond all else, these people are, in fact, human beings, and so they're... Sustaining a huge well, wave of criticism. Case. Well, <laughs> okay, now I've got to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there you are, out there on the limb. And <laughs> makes me feel better. So, I suppose what I did want to talk about today was just a little bit about some of the personality characteristics which have become apparent um, throughout the course of Donald Trump's campaign um, in terms of his response to things that have happened or some of his statements in the media uh, and to sort of think about them in terms of the constructs that we have about personality. Because a lot of people have talked about narcissism in relation to Donald Trump. And whilst I think that there is a fair... I mean, there's a fair amount of information which would suggest that there are narcissistic elements of his personality, the thing that I'm more concerned about and that I think probably is more concerning for a presidential candidate is the psychopathy aspect of um, some of the things which he has said and some of the things which have been said about him. So, Can you uh, go ahead. tell us... What you mean by narcissism and psychopathy? Yeah. I hate it when people ask me this. That's why I'm speaking in a hesitant voice. No, no, absolutely. It's so hard to describe. We all well, know it's like riding a bike. We all know what we mean by narcissistic and psychopathic, but putting it into words is sometimes hard. But if anyone can do it, I have faith in you. <laughs> well, I think it's a really interesting question, so I'm happy to have a stab at it. So um, the, I think that the... The common understanding of narcissism is this idea that people think they're fabulous. That, that, um, and I'm not sure that that's actually necessarily the case. Certainly, people who have what we would consider a narcissistic personality like to be associated with lots of success and very important people, and they like to be seen as being very powerful. And I think that's true of Donald Trump. You know, he's made all of these huge towers and lined them with gold. Them. That's right. Yeah, that's right. And Trump um, tower. you know, everything is tremendous and everything's huge. And he's got very normal-sized hands. <laughs> That's right. So nothing can be small. Uh, and, and so that makes sense in terms of our idea about narcissism. The thing that makes me think that there is an element of narcissism in his personality makeup is that um, I think the way we try to think about the genesis of narcissism is that people um, who grow up in an environment where they have conditional approval from a parent, so uh, if they do well then they have approval and love from a parent, uh, means that they are prompted to create a sort of a very fragile and false sense of who they are, that they're only worthy if they're extremely successful and if they're not totally successful then they're actually not worthy at all. Uh, And that means that they actually have quite a fragile sense of self which can be really easily punctured. 
and you see this. So the narcissist traditionally absolutely over-responds to any form of criticism. That's and right. And you sometimes see the term fragile narcissist. Yes, indeed. And you sort of see that in Donald Trump's response to even very faint criticism or things that you would think would be beneath his interests. Like, for example, the criticism of um, the way that he treated a woman 20 years ago who was the Miss Universe. Yeah, the Miss Universe and He thing. completely yeah. overreacted to that and sent yeah. out a barrage of tweets at three yeah. in the morning. <laughs> and, and it really damaged his campaign because he was seen as thin-skinned. But I actually think it's consistent with this idea about narcissism. And what about psychopathy then? So psychopathy is a slightly different sort of concept and it's a much more um, carefully defined and smaller concept than the one which is described in the DSM, which is the the thing that we use to talk about personality in general in psychiatry. So antisocial personality disorder is a whole grab bag of all sorts of different things, but psychopathy itself is a much more specific set of behaviours and attitudes. So the first one I want to talk about is, I suppose a complete disregard for or even a desire to flout social norms and So you're now talking about characteristics of psychopathy and yeah. you're going to compare them to some of Donald Trump's behaviour? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, you know, you see this a little bit in the way that he just doesn't follow the rules. When he was in the um, Republican convention debates, for example, he would just completely talk over people or mm. he would attack them personally. He was never going to be talking about policy or any of the things that they thought they were going to talk about. He also does things that you would just not ever think were possible, like kind of inciting gun violence against Hillary Clinton, for example, or by making reference to Second Amendment rights in a speech. Um, and so I think that's probably in play also with his tax evasion, where it turns out he's probably not t- paid tax, maybe ever, but at least for like 18 years or so. The um, th- yeah, I mean, the only thing, of course, allegations of, in- impressions of, because, you know, I mean, his party, of course, said he wasn't um, trying to promote gun violence against um, Hillary Clinton at all. He was just making this... X, Y, and Z comment. And of course, he denies any tax evasion. But, and New York Times published something saying that he probably hasn't paid tax. But I don't think they had proof. So it is all. Um, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Speculation. Yeah. Absolutely. Allegations. Definitely. Um, but I suppose the other thing, the other thing that you, you, you traditionally I'm pre- associate I'm preventing with. preventing you from being sued by Donald Trump. I appreciate realize, it. I which appreciate could be a tough defence. Go on. Thank you. I guess the second core aspect of psychopathy is really a lack of empathy for other people or um and and you sort of see this perhaps in the way that uh he would reframe the global financial crisis and the the collapse of housing um prices in the u.s as kind of a business opportunity rather than being able to think about you know the millions of people who were bankrupted and whose lives were destroyed by this particular social phenomenon um which kind of feeds into another trait of he which could be associated with Donald Trump, which is this idea about selfishness, um, uh, which was described by Cleckley as a pathological egocentricity and an incapacity for love. So I think, you know, that's something which which you could arguably think about in, in terms of this sort of a- applying the whole concept of psychopathy to, to someone who's a public figure such as perhaps You Donald know Trump. what, though? How many politicians... You know, I'm sitting here thinking of every... Trying to think of every politician I can think of who I know reasonably well, some Australian, some US, some English, and they're the main ones I follow. And I'm thinking to myself uh, on those three characteristics, yes, no. And for most of them, I'm thinking yes. Yes. Isn't it... Wouldn't psychopathy and narcissism be almost... Not to a high degree, but wouldn't it be a slight advantage if you're entering public Mm. life and you're wanting to rule the the world or the country? Absolutely. And there's a book called Snakes in Suits which talks about how successful 
people with psychopathic traits are in business, for example, because they need to be able to climb to the top yeah. and stand on other people on their way mm. up. So it seem, some... seems like a little bit's good to help mm. get you to the top, but if you've got too much of these traits, they're always going to bring you undone in the end because the people around you aren't going to support you. Well, I think that's true. I think that some of the, the aspects of psychopathy are helpful and others are really damaging. So um, there's another aspect, which is irresponsibility, and um, I think that that's a problem if you're going to be a candidate for, say, one of the most powerful positions in the world. Uh, and, and that's, I think, the thing that's worried Republicans in particular, um, insincerity and, and irresponsibility, that there's a possibility that you can't really believe what Donald Trump says because he says something and then says something completely the opposite quite soon afterwards. And the irresponsibility idea and the difficulty planning ahead, which I think also for someone in such a position of responsibility and power is a bit of a problematic Reasonably trait. important. Yeah. Well, one of the takes I've seen on that too is just the ability to say you're going to fix something and just display a blind faith in your in your own ability. Like, for example, as Dr. Pat was saying earlier with the uh, whole mental health thing, you know, essentially what he got up there and said is about veterans is, yeah, it's a real problem, lots of suicides, we need to fix it and we're going to fix it. Don't worry. No, absolutely. But he, he genuinely looked like he believed it. He generally seemed to have no perspective on the fact that for a couple of decades mm. everyone's been putting their mind to this and of course it would benefit from more money and greater support from the government but you know the solutions aren't as obvious as you know it, 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 it is, he thinks yes. and uh, and that sort of I don't you know and again I've seen lots of other politicians so I'm not being specific to Donald Trump but mm. that's again suggests this degree of narcissism that's not helpful this blind faith in your own ability to fix things well yes another trait in the psychopathy checklist oh, psychopathy, which is sorry, yeah, yeah, um, which is overconfidence and so I mean, it almost seems as though you're right. In order to be a candidate, you have to have a certain modicum of these sorts of personality traits. Otherwise, you can't withstand the constant bombardment of attention and negative attention Mm -hmm. that people uh, throw at you if you're in public life. But on the other hand, if you finally get there and get that prize, there are some things that you might do and ways that you might behave which could be seriously damaging for stability. And so the gist is a little bit's going to probably be present in all leaders, but Mm. if we think to ourselves that a particular leader, whether it's Donald Trump or anyone else, has too much, we should be really nervous because it, it will be counterproductive. Is that the gist? That's, that's my feeling. And, and it, but I also think um, it's, it's an interesting character study, um, that's all. Uh, th- that there are sort of people in public life that you can use as sort of illustrations of certain personality characteristics and it does teach you something about, you know, the way that people behave uh, and, and, and mm. the, con- the huge variety of human emotion and behaviour. Well, and that's where it's nice to think about these things because public figures make great, just like TV shows and movies, they make great ways for us to reflect on our own behaviour and what we think about stuff. Hey, is there any... um, Can you just tell us about, not the details of the Marseille conference, but what is it? And just tell us what perinatal mental... I can't even say. Can you please? Yeah, yeah. Perinatal mental health. Um, so the Marseille conference is this enormous. It's huge. Yeah, I've heard about it for decades, and I've never been. Yeah. So it was on just a, a week ago, uh, and it was at this massive hotel in Melbourne. And we there were, it went on for sort of four or five days, and there were conference workshops before and after, and they constantly had four different ballrooms running with um, sessions about perinatal mental health, which so is it's mothers and babies' mental health around. Birth, yeah, yeah, but we also had a whole series on fathers and, um, and oh, carers really? and parents, um, less, less biologically specifically so, and also about pregnancy um, and the processes in pregnancy, both biological and psychological, that might combine to promote ill health. Um, so it's also not just for psychiatrists or psychologists. There are lots and lots of other um, healthcare professionals who attend. Music therapists? I, I would 
don't you think I've so. seen a music therapist there. Maybe but next I think year. That, yeah, maybe yeah. next year. Annalise, we, we should talk, Annalise. Get there. <laughs> but also uh, lots of um, consumers and uh, people who have lived experience. So. Hey, um, thank you. Next time I'll try and allow more time so you can tell more about it. But our time is almost up. Um, thank you, everyone, for listening. You've been listening to Radiotherapy. We're on every Sunday morning at 10am. Following us, of course, is Einstein and Gogo. Probably, arguably, definitely the best science program in Australia. And uh, they've got a cast of thousands. I believe they even have Professor Peter Doherty, Australia's famous <gasps> Nobel Prize winner. I don't know. I hope I haven't inappropriately announced something. Someone look out the window and see if I'm telling the truth. Annalise Way, music therapist, thank you so much for coming in this morning. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Fantastic. And um, Perry Partham and Trainer Wheels, thank you also. I'm Dr Doolittle. Thanks, Kent, for doing the panel. We will be back at 10am next week. Don't forget I'm going to put an ad up on our Facebook page, Radiotherapy on Triple R, about the addictions event on October the 21st at the National Gallery, Victoria. Bye-bye. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.